Blog Talk Radio. Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of Tri News and Absolute Podcast. Uh, we're here today talking ACC football and specifically Florida State. Uh, today's sponsor is Audible.com, though, a leading provider of book and audio entertainment and information. Uh, you can listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Um, I know you guys have heard in the past, but you can get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30 day trial through our custom URL. Um, audibletrial.com slash noonsmagician. And with that, uh, see we have Dan and special guest Bud Elliott. How's it going, guys? Hey. Going well. Bud, nice of you to join us. Glad we could chat some, some seminoles today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, sorry about missing out last week. I, I just totally spaced out. Hey, no worries. Things happen. Our team totally spaced out against you guys last year, so just returning <laughs> to favor, I guess. Oh man, yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting game. That's actually the uh, the only game of the year I actually uh, got to sit in the stands uh, and, and watch. Usually up there in the booth, uh, but I had our three interns uh, run the show as kind of their their course final uh, for the year and just uh, and just evaluate it. Yeah, they gave us three three seats in the press box. I was pretty surprised about that. Uh, but you know, got to got to sit down there with my dad and uh, watch the ball game. But that was it, it was kind of interesting to be able to see them more up close and personal, down low as, as opposed to you know kind of from the box level. And uh, that, that was impressive, especially with all the stuff going on at the time. You wondered how the team was going to come out with you know, focus and whatnot. And uh, yeah, that, that was crazy. I think Dan and I both talked about the game last year before it was going, and you know there was some there was some chatter about you know is the guys going to be distracted and whatnot, and uh, and I think Dan and I both kind of dismissed that pretty quickly. And uh, I think our main goal this year um, is uh, is no hangman on the sidelines. That's <laughs> 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 the main goal is to prevent that from happening at all costs, and and I'll consider it a, a solid game. That really was was kind of symbolic of how the whole season went for the most part in terms of just no – I really don't remember an FSU season where they, where they weren't challenged. Uh, when they won it all in 99, they really had this week by Clemson in the regular season. And of course, they were challenged by Auburn in the, in the final um, this year. But in terms of through the regular season, it really wasn't a game where you ever thought, okay, they're going to lose this. I mean, Boston College led for like 25 minutes. Uh, but that, that really was, was the closest they came during the regular season. Yep, and uh, frighteningly enough, uh, you guys do bring a ton back. Um, Dan, I, I guess we'll start on your end. What? Uh, I mean, obviously, James Winston is, is very scary from from an opposing defense standpoint. But what scares you the most about about what FSU is returning? Just, I mean, it's hard to pick one thing. Um, Winston, Winston's the answer, I guess, just because quarterback is so important, and he was just ridiculous last year as a freshman, and you have to assume he'll at least be as good, if not better, even if his stats drop a little bit. Um, but he's just uh, ridiculous. The whole team is out of control. Um, I've been just throwing down uh, Bill Connolly's preview, which I read the other day when it came out, and I'm just going to refresh you on it. Uh, FSU has, it looks like at least one five-star player at every position except for, like, tight end, and surprisingly offensive line doesn't seem like they have anyone. But, oh, I mean, so there's just blue chips everywhere. Um, the whole team doesn't really, as, as Bill really nicely pointed out, doesn't seem to have a real weakness. 
I think he said, like, covering punts is bad, but Syracuse returned, like, one punt last year, so that doesn't even matter when we play them. Uh, so it's just, like, the whole factor. Plus, now they know how to win. Um, I know there might be a little bit of concern of, of having, like, a hangover season, which happens, but that's one of those hard things to quantify, and I wouldn't want to bet on that being the case. Um, it's just a really experienced team that just bludgeoned everyone um, up until Auburn and, and showed that it can win a close game where they face adversity and it's Auburn. Uh, it's just a scary team overall. Uh, pointing out one thing, it's pretty tough, and I don't think it's uh, the best way to go about looking at Florida State at, at this point. You know, I, I think you really kind of hit it on the head there. I mean, that's it. The, the, the mindset I've taken towards this team is that they almost arrived a year early last year. When we were doing our, our predictions last year, I thought, okay, you know, 11 and 1, 10 and 2, it's a team with a lot of talent, but a, a distinct lack of depth uh, at certain positions, and that they would need to stay kind of unfathomably healthy, healthy, if you would, um, in, in order to have a special year. And it just so happened that they only lost one starter the entire year, uh, and that was uh, Tyler Hunter in, in the second game of the year, and they plugged in a five star safety who ended up being probably the best freshman defensive back in the country outside of uh, Vernon Hargraves, and just rolled with it. And they had really no true backups on the offensive line at all. You know, the, the drop-off was just huge. If you look at the sack percentages, I think FSU was giving up uh, two and a half more sacks per drop-back when they put in the backups as they were compared to the starters because those guys were so young and inexperienced. So last year they really probably should not have been in that situation to win the title, but just nobody ever got hurt, and their starters were really, really good. This year, I think the overall depth is a lot better, um, but I am concerned about leadership, especially from the defensive side of the ball. If you look at the guys they lost, a Timmy Jernigan, a Telvin Smith, a LaMarcus Joyner, and a Terrence Brooks, they're all, I mean, all drafting the top, like, 70 picks or whatever. But more importantly, I think, at least in terms of this team, was that those were your biggest leaders on defense, and those were your really fiery guys. And I'm not really sure who's going to step up on that side of the football Um you know, to, to to kind of take over that role and, and beat on doors at 5 a.m. and say, hey, let's go to workouts. Let's, let's, you know, keep working and win this thing. So that's kind of one of the big questions I have. All valid. Um, I, I know you brought up one thing, bud, that um, I definitely wanted to key on, in on, and that's the offensive line. Um, you guys returned four or five starters. So, um, you know, while last year a lot of those guys only got to play in some garbage time, um, at the same time, it's not as as difficult, you know, to kind of plug in somebody. It, well, it's not as difficult because you're bringing it back four or five, but I guess because you the, the the one guy you lost was Remington Trophy winner, you know, Brian Stork. How do you replace him of all people? I mean, obviously having those four guys helps, but but how do you replace such a physical dominant presence in in the, in the middle? You know, it, it, it's a good question. Um, and traditionally under four state, they have preferred. Uh, to go with the undersized, smarter guy uh, at center. In fact, Stork, uh, who you know did win the Remington, as you noted, was actually recruited initially. He was a tight end at a high school and ended up adding 70 pounds because FSU's strength program is just somehow otherworldly, uh, unless you're Alabama, then you probably think it's kind of average. Um, but, uh, yeah, they often go with guys who are a little bit smaller uh, and know all the calls and, and get everybody else on the line in the, in the correct call, the correct, you know, correct protection, all that kind of stuff. So, it looks like the leader in the clubhouse right now is a kid named Austin Barron. And I really shouldn't call him a kid because he's a senior. He's just been kind of biding his time, waiting to start. Uh, Stork, you know, the guy who they lost, struggled with concussions a good bit. 
and Stork, or excuse me, and Barron had to fill in for him uh, several times over the last couple of years. He's done a decent job. He's not a great player. He's probably not going to not going to hurt you really bad either. Um, he's probably going to be the guy that, that takes it. But I, I should note too, they did sign uh, two really highly touted junior college players to come in. So not only do you have the the young pups who, who got developed last year in garbage time, uh, but you also bring in two of uh, probably 10 or 15 best junior college offensive linemen in the country uh, to add to that mix and come in and fight for spots. And I kind of wondered, like, how the hell they signed these kids, considering they really don't have a whole lot of open spots uh, uh, to promise them out of junior college. But um, they, they managed to do so, and it certainly helps to death, if, if nothing else. You know, I think the undersized uh, smart guy at center uh, – model I think works and I know uh, for us uh, having last year Mackie McPherson I, I think was a very similar um, mindset I think for us now we're kind of you know not panicking necessarily but, but very much where I mean we're not replacing a Remington Trophy winner necessarily but then I know offensive line is sort of your specialty um, do you see do you see anything we might be able to emulate from Florida State I know we can't get the talent um, at this point, obviously, uh, recruiting-wise, but I think we are making some strides. Uh, but I know you've taken some notice about like we are we are making progress. We're we're getting some offensive linemen, and we're understanding that you know we we have to at least win one of the speed and/or size games um, when it comes to recruiting if we want to you know win more games in the ACC. Yeah, I I don't know if we're you know obviously going to follow the path of, of Florida State, but I think we've done a pretty good job uh, take getting linemen out of out of quality places. I, most of our guys seem to come out of like the PA, Illinois, Ohio type area where we've been doing pretty well. Um, we tend to go more after the speed type smaller guys, not not like Mackie where people obsess about his size for three years. But um, I don't know. I don't have a major preference. I think both work. It's more a matter of getting talented players and then kind of going from there. But um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if our recruiting started to tend towards the smaller, you know, relatively anyway, talking about D1 linemen, um, quicker guys. Uh, anyway, it's worked out with obviously Mackey and then even Q and, and Sean Hickey now aren't the biggest tackles, but uh, they get out on people and they're, they're incredibly strong, which makes up for, you know, maybe a 10 or 20 pound uh, difference between them and a, another guy. So, um, I think it's all about just having, you know, the the, the fit and uh, and obviously having a coach that knows what he's doing, which is another thing we'll have to see this year losing Pat Hurls. You know, I, I think when you look at offensive linemen, uh, just want to go around to these camps and go to high school games and see them, outside of like the top maybe 25 guys in the country, you, you really have to make a choice. Do you want a bigger guy who you think you can kind of trim down a little bit and expose some athleticism that you didn't see? Or do you want to find a smaller guy who you think can retain his athleticism as you bulk him, and then maybe has a you know a bigger, bigger bone frame, and he's just kind of lean right now, and, and you, you know you think you can put 30, 40 pounds on him, whatever, uh, in, in, in a year or two. And I, I think a lot of those choices depend on what your offensive line coach wants to do, uh, what your offensive coordinator wants to do. I know Florida State has always pretty much favored the, the, the quickness aspect um, overall, and they did they did make a noticeable push to get bigger. I think as they got pushed around some uh, in 2008 and 2009, Jimbo Fisher wanted a little bit bigger linemen, uh, and they were able to go out and get that too, but not not huge guys necessarily at the time. They had been gradually turned in to huge guys. But you got to have that mesh between your offensive line coach, 
your offensive coordinator and your scheme, what you want to do. I mean, right? you're, you're a zone team, you're a power team. Uh, and then also with, with your uh, with your strength staff and, and your nutrition staff and those guys, they have to be all on the same page and realize you know, we have a goal for these guys. We, we want all these dudes on the, the bulking plan, I know, or or perhaps on, on the kind of trim down plan. I know at FSU they have a uh, they have three tables. It's either your or excuse me, is it four now? I'm trying to remember how they set this up, but I know there's a table for maintaining, which is where you're basically where they want you. Uh, a table for gaining. A table for hard gainers, which is I guess where they just totally pick out, and then a table for guys who are, are losing. And then if you don't if you don't eat the right amount of food, or if you are like caught taking from other guys' plates, if you're on, on the lose table, you have to go eat lunch with, at the coach's table. And so it's kind of a deterrent for that. But you really have to have the total synergy there with your staff to make sure those guys are, are on the same page and they can ultimately get to where you need them to be within you know a year or two, perhaps three of being in the program. Yeah, with um, with Mackey especially last year, um, just because I, I know you're talking about Florida State losing their center. Um, from a Syracuse perspective, I'm interested to find out how they replaced Mackey because he was probably I, I would I have no idea technically, but I assume one of the only centers in the country that was asked to like pull out on on safeties on plays and stuff because he was so quick. So. Again, I think that's probably the direction that Syracuse will choose to go, but there are some bigger guys on the team, too, so it might just be more of a, you know, get whoever we can that's talented and see where we can put them. Yeah, you know, I got in arguments, uh, in fact, today in the comment section with some folks who were saying that if a shoot offensive line was was, uh, not very good at all last year, I was like, I really kind of disagree with that pretty strongly. Uh, And the the dude argument in the comment section was pointing out the uh, the tackles for loss, and, and I think this really illustrates the point that, you know, offensive line is difficult to to evaluate oftentimes, especially just off TV. If you don't have that back end, the back end camera angle, very tough to see who missed their blocks, and, and even tougher if you really don't know what their actual assignments were on these plays. And I know at FSU, with, with the offensive line they had last year, they asked those guys to execute some very difficult angles on blocks, and they would miss them sometimes. But the trade-off, and a trade-off that Florida State was willing to accept, uh, was that they would pop a lot of big plays. I know they had very uh, very close to the number of 20-yard runs as Auburn did, despite running the ball about 180 times left on the season. So that's a trade-off. And it's just something to keep in mind when we think about offensive line and the different responsibilities and what we ask for these guys. It's not all the same. So we really can't evaluate them, you know, apples to apples. Yeah, I think it's funny. I know, like, going into the game um, – it seemed like everyone was just saying, well, last year for FSU and Syracuse was just, you know, like we should definitely blitz Winston. I mean, Syracuse was a blitzing defense last year um, from every which way, and that's pretty much the only way we generate pressure and the only way that we, you know, generate big plays on D. But, you know, you brought up a good point there, but, like, just because just because the, the number, the sack numbers said one thing doesn't necessarily mean that that's the full story. And I think um, for some of us, I know, like, kind of, Fighting in on that narrative that, that we could potentially generate pressure um, was obviously uh, mistaken based on how that game started. That you know, um, I believe it was. Did you write that piece last year about like blitz Winston at your own risk? And basically yes, yeah, yeah, I, I wrote it after, after the Clemson game. Yeah, I, I think he was either perfect or, or one off in, in the Clemson game against the Blitz, and it was just kind of a because Pitt also started bringing some pressure early, and then they just kind of hung back and. Uh, Gosh, one other team brought, brought pressure early, and it was just after a while we realized 
this Winston kid is way too good against the blitz, and he has a, a trio of receivers here that, that are really good at breaking off their hots, especially Kenny Shaw, who was a, a huge luxury for that team, and probably as good of a number three receiver as you're going to find in college football. All right, that's what I think people underestimate. I mean, not just Winston's speed, but it's it's really just the overall team speed from from the linemen to I mean, like you said, like Shaw's a number three receiver is it I mean would be a number one on most other teams in the nation, and to see something like that where enough guys can get out in the open, even if Winston faces pressure and starts to get knocked out of the pocket, you know, he's got some safety valves there who can really just tear up the field. And I think, you know, that's a lesson learned to a lot of people. But now, um, you know, despite losing a couple um, big names on offense, both running back and wide receiver positions, um, I, I, I mean, I think you guys are, are, are well, well set. Um, I know with Carlos Williams uh, kind of taking on a bigger role this year, I know he kind of expanded his throughout the year last year. Do you think that he's somebody who can who can really kind of carry everything for, for a season? Do you think he's going to be someone who kind of splits carries with, with one or two other running backs like FSU uh, backs have in the last few years? You, you know, it's an interesting question, and you brought up the point that for the most part, FSU's backs have kind of rotated a lot over the last couple of years. And uh, I know Freeman was the first back to go for a 1,000 yards uh, since work done. Uh, so that's, you know, quite a bit of time. But there are guys in that staff who feel like Carlos Williams is the most talented running back in the country. Now, I don't know if I agree with that because there's a guy in, in Athens, Georgia, who's, who's pretty damn good and a couple guys up in Tuscaloosa. But um, he's extremely talented. If you look at his highlights and, and how they use him later on in the year, he really became their number two back. Uh, as opposed to the number three guy he started out as earlier on in the year. He kind of supplanted James Walter Jr., um, who got picked up by the Bengals. I, I think Carlos is going to get the majority of the carries this year. I mean, he's a, a truly explosive guy with, with game-breaking speed, but he's also a really big dude. I mean, he, he's, you know, 215, 220 pounds. He's, he's not a smaller guy. And he's someone who I've actually wanted to see play offense since about, that's what year was Grand Kings, I guess 2008 or 2009. Uh, back when he was a junior in high school and FSU was looking at him. Um, but he had it in his mind that he wanted to play safety and that he was a safety. And I, I was always thinking, this, this guy really doesn't have very good instincts on defense. He's, you know, for for a four- or five-star safety, he doesn't make a whole lot of interceptions. He doesn't make a whole lot of, you know, breaking on the ball type plays. He's more of a of a come down and, and hit you at, after the guy's already caught the football thing. So I, I am glad they finally switched him to offense. I actually thought he could be a really good receiver, too. Uh, because he's a bit of a taller guy, but I think running back is, is pretty pretty clearly his calling. And uh, and the second time Jimbo asked him to move, he finally said okay. And I guess the rest is history. He, he was really kind of a breakout guy for them last year. But I think he'll probably get most of the carries. Um, they got a guy named Mario Pender, who actually uh, has I don't think he's ever had a carry for FSU in a game. He had some issues uh, with some uh, injuries and then with some academic stuff. Uh, but apparently he made the honor roll. Uh, last semester, which was a little bit surprising to everybody, and we're really glad to see that. Um, he'll probably be your number two fighting for carries uh, with a five-star freshman, Dalvin Cook, who apparently ran 23 miles an hour using FSU's new GPS system, which is kind of mind-boggling. Um, and then uh, Ryan Green as well, who's a four-star who's battled some shoulder injuries out, out of St. Pete. So they got four guys who are coming out of your four or five stars, but I do think Williams will probably be the main guy. Nice. And, I mean, I guess that's what, like, I was definitely, you know, thinking to hear that, you know, Williams seems like, 
and not that Ben Freeman or Wilder in particular weren't like great backs, but it does seem like um, because you know Williams is a little bit more physical, is a little bit bigger guy, that he does seem like you know he can take the stress of the full season. Um, and I mean, barring injury, of course, so it's not like you guys don't have a slate of blue chippers behind him. And just in case something does happen, and I think you know, Florida State obviously, while Winston is kind of um, you know the key to success, I, I do think that 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 running game and its and its efficiency, at least you know, has kind of you know gone hand in hand with that. I think, like most great quarterbacks, they get set up by a great running game, and I think last year's you know case in point, and I think, you know, Williams is going to, I am curious to see, at least in the first, especially in the first game against Oklahoma State, I know they don't have much of a defense to speak of, Um, but at the same time, like, I think it's going to be interesting to see against, you know, another power conference opponent, um, if Williams can kind of be a tone setter and really kind of set the stage for Winston. It really is interesting because, you know, FSU returns the Heisman Trophy winner, yet a lot of the FSU fans you read and, and including myself here, are kind of more excited about the running game. I mean, you return what really might be the best offensive line in the country, and you have Carlos Williams, a guy who um, people think can be drafted extremely high, and he's actually a lot more of a breakaway threat. I mean, even though he's bigger than Freeman and, and, you know, about close to wilder size, he's much more of a breakaway threat than those guys were. I think the questions about Williams are are, are going to be, how is he in pass protection, Uh, and is he going to be a guy who really – gets the yards you need to, or, or is he going to be more of a boom and bust guy who, who misses a hole and, and gets you in that second and 12 situation, but then later in the game on, on you know, first and 10 takes it 60 yards. I, I don't know how much Jumbo's going to tolerate that. I know he's been very much a guy who prefers the, the running backs who, who get the yards that the play is designed to get, and if you can get more, that's great. But don't dance and don't screw up the design of the play and, and, and put the offense in a negative uh, down and distance situation and create that leverage for the defense. But those are kind of the two things I'm watching the most uh, from Carlos. Dan, what about you? What uh, I know we kind of discussed a lot of the running backs. Um, there's obviously a ton of returning talent at receiver, but who kind of scares you the most out of, out of those individuals? And we'll also throw Nick O'Leary into there because, I mean, if anyone's seen the videos of Nick O'Leary getting tossed up a motorcycle, uh, the guy can take a hit. Twice. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, when you uh, said you for Leary, I was thinking, you know, assuming he's, he's playing that week and not not in the hospital, that's easy to calm down with the motorcycle stuff. But um, I, I'm very relieved that Kelvin Benjamin isn't around anymore, uh, mostly because uh, SU seems to be leaning towards, um, you know, we've been bringing in a couple of, you know, smaller corners and and. I'm not, yeah, I wouldn't have looked forward to that matchup again. I don't remember what his numbers were like in the last game, but who knows if he can play past the second quarter. But um, obviously, Rashad Rashad Green is back, who had a tremendous season last year. O'Leary's back. Um, It's just a a bevy of riches for Winston. Um, I'm I'm afraid of O'Leary. I think tight ends last year really gave us uh, a lot of trouble, especially in that Clemson game where we got burned deep and. multiple times, I believe, by their tight end. Uh, so hopefully we shore that up. But we do have, obviously, major secondary questions as we do every year at Syracuse. Um, and our linebackers, are, our outside linebackers especially, are, are far more comfortable rushing the passers. So um, if Florida State, you know, has any, you know, has to go to any well, I, I don't think they would have much trouble finding Nick O'Leary 
um, in the intermediate passing game. Uh, and after he gets into the secondary, unless Darrell Lethbridge is over there, I'm not sure uh, how much trouble he's going to have running through guys. So not not looking forward to playing this team at all, but uh, having James Winston pass the ball to the type of talent they have on the edge and, and over the middle with O'Leary is just not a pretty scary. You know, uh, one name I'll, I'll give you all to look out for. Uh, obviously, Green is, is your, your starter at, at the X, and then you have O'Leary. Uh, but the start at the, at the other receiver spot is, is kind of unsettled. And one guy you should really look out for, uh, even though he's a true freshman, is a kid named Travis Rudolph. Um, I know Irmon Lane, that the other, they, they signed two five stars and a four star receiver in his last class. So it's, it's kind of a embarrassment of riches again. Irmon um, Lane got most of the press when they signed him because he was a, a former Florida Gators commit. Uh, and someone who they, you know, they weren't sure where he was going to go and, and blah, blah, blah. Although I'm pretty sure everybody knew where, where he was going to end up after, after a couple months. Um, but I think Travis Rudolph, despite having maybe not quite the ceiling of Lane, is probably the most college-ready receiver that I saw in the country last year. He's, he's the one guy that really combines the, the upper-level talent with the route running in the hands and just kind of the understanding of spacing and that, that sort of stuff. That, that I saw in the camp circuit and the all-star game circuit and, and the high school game circuit. So I, I would not be surprised at all if he ends up starting for Florida State, uh, even though I don't think he's necessarily the most talented guy coming out of high school. I think he actually has the, the polish uh, necessary and the work ethic to, to be Florida State's number two. Now I'm even more concerned. Yeah, I was concerned about all the other returning starting guys and Kermit Whitfield. And oh, I forgot Whitfield, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it was funny because Whitfield had battled the hamstring, and like the Syracuse game was the one game Jimbo was sort of like, uh, let's, "Let's let's bust this toy out of the shed and see what we can do with it." And uh, and and yeah, it just that was that was some crazy speed. You picked the right secondary to uh, to take that toy out. <laughs> you know uh, what's what's crazy is that he was actually uh, the second fastest man. Uh, at Florida State for about two semesters until uh, a kid from his rival, one of his rivals in high school uh, on the track, Marvin Bracey, uh, who was also on FSU's football team, but much more of a track guy, uh, decided to go ahead and pursue his dream of, of running professionally and going to the Olympics. So then Kermit became the uh, the fastest guy on the team. So for a brief moment there, FSU did have uh, a player faster than Kermit Whitfield on the football team. Again, terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but with all this talent, obviously, uh, coaching isn't always the biggest concern, especially with a guy like Jimbo in charge. But um, has Jimbo created kind of such a well-oiled machine that it no longer matters, um, like, who he has as his assistants? I know, you know, once again, we're seeing turnover um, on the staff, but it just seems – I know you said and other people have said, too, like, let's not oversell Jeremy Pruitt. And, you know, let's not oversell – to the guys, it seems like Jimbo just knows what he's doing, and he's going to run things regardless of who has the title of coordinator. You know, I, I think the staff that he has assembled now uh, works much better with him uh, than the old staff he had. And granted, the old staff had its utility uh, because Florida State w- was low on talent when he took over, and he really, they really needed to to rev, you know, to, to rev that, that talent amount up. And, and so they had all these young guys on staff, Damian Craig and uh, James Coley and all of them who are great recruiters, but perhaps not 
not quite as good coaches. Uh, and this staff is, is distinctly older uh, and much better, I, I think, at coaching and game planning. Uh, on the offensive side of the ball, what's really helped, at least in terms of some of the guys I'm able to talk to, is that Randy Sanders, the guy who was the offensive coordinator at Tennessee for so many years and then at Kentucky, and uh, a guy who you know, a lot of Tennessee fans really did not like after a while because their offense wasn't very good, uh, and, and, tennis, and Kentucky fans as well. But thinking what kind of, what kind of talent can you get at Kentucky? Um, he's, he's really meshed well with Jimbo because he, at least from the guys I'm able to talk to, he's, in, he's able to anticipate what Jimbo is thinking. Uh, and when Jimbo needs to unload on somebody, Sanders just kind of, uh-huh, all right, yep, and takes some notes and just lets Jimbo vent as much as he needs to. And Jimbo will definitely go nuts sometimes, uh, both in public and definitely in private with the coaches. And that was a change, apparently, from what Damian Craig would do, uh, which would not mesh nearly as well with Fisher. And, and of course, Sanders has done a really nice job working with Winston. Uh, and Jimbo, who's a quarterback coach by nature, and um, is comfortable with Sanders working with Winston, which is really nice for Jimbo because then he's kind of freed up. Instead of being quarterback coach, offense coordinator, and head coach, and guy who's constantly doing all his recruiting stuff, he allows Sanders to work with Winston and the other quarterbacks quite a bit. And he's able to venture around to other parts of practice and be kind of a more of a, of a general and see, see oversee everything as opposed to being so offensive-centric. Uh, so I think that, that was an important and probably underrated hire um, by him. And then uh, on the defensive side of the ball, certainly Jeremy Pruitt came in and did a fantastic job, and I don't want to discredit him in any way. He really did a nice job. Uh, he, he installed the defense that Jimbo wanted him to install, which was Nick Saban's defense, more the, the man coverage with some of the pattern match zone stuff, uh, more heavy on, on the pressures, uh, more focused on getting the ball out of the quarterback hand quickly as opposed to uh, trying to go for sacks. But he also had two guys on staff, and Charles Kelly, who was later promoted defensive coordinator, and Salson Surrey, the defensive ends coach, who was the defensive coordinator at Tennessee, uh, who were on Nick Saban's staff or Al Groh's staff. And granted, Al Groh is not a, maybe not a great guy to put in your resume, but you do have exposure to that system. Uh, and perhaps at Georgia Tech, Kelly saw what can and perhaps cannot be taught uh, to college kids. And I think having three guys who had real experience in that system Really helped, helped Kelly along the way, as did this. If you think about who Kelly had in his secondary as he was a secondary coach, so far, pick number 41 overall, pick number 71 overall, Mel Kuyper's number one projected cornerback for this year, Mel Kuyper's number two projected cornerback for this year, and then Jalen Ramsey, the guy who's probably the, the best uh, class of 2016 draft safety in the country. So when, when, uh, when I was on the radio and talking to those Georgia fans, that was kind of my point. If you have a couple of other guys on staff who know the system and you have the talent that Florida State had in the secondary, which it's perhaps never had at one time ever in the program's history, then, yeah, you can probably put together a dominant defense in year one. But if not, maybe temporary expectations a little bit there in Athens. Oh, that all makes sense to me. I mean, like I, I definitely agree with you. don't want to take any credit away from Pruitt, but definitely see, you know, how – how yeah, you can see both sides of the coin in terms of Pruitt, um, where both his, his pluses and, and just the things that he inherited that, that certainly made his job easier. I'm not sure I'm not sure exactly what happens in Georgia this year. Um, I know that they obviously recruit well, but I am I, I think for, for anyone who kind of paid attention to FSU secondary last year and Pruitt in particular, um, are definitely gonna be have an eye on Athens to see what happens up there. 
Absolutely. With that, I think we'll hit halftime around here. So uh, before we jump into beer and other alcohol-related matters, just wanted to uh, another shout-out to our sponsor, uh, Trainer and Absolute Podcast. It is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com, as I mentioned before. It provides some great spoken digital audio entertainment and over 150,000 titles to choose from. You can use any device you want, and you can get a free trial uh, through this podcast at audibletrial.com slash magician. I have two books to recommend this week on Audible, both of which have something to do with Florida State. First one is Hyphen, The Man Behind the Trophy. Um, and it was actually written by John Hyphen and uh, Mark Schlabach from ESPN. And then the other one, Tales from the Florida State Seminole Sideline, a collection of the greatest Seminole stories ever told, which I'm sure if you haven't read it or heard it already, but I'm sure you will soon. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I'm. I actually, I'm, I'm not not on the uh, not on the audio book server here, but I, I may end up picking that up. Yeah, it seems like. Uh, I mean, it's, I know Bobby Bowden contributed a ton to it, obviously. So I'm sure there'll be some some fun stories and maybe some some under the radar quips from the sidelines over the years. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I was actually watching a uh, something special on Sun Sports or, or something a little while back, and. Uh, um, it, it was funny because Steve Spurrier uh, was quoted as griping that back in the, the pre-internet days, nobody really could figure out who Florida State had committed or, or, or had not committed yet. And uh, and so you'd have, you know, five-star in, in South Georgia and five-star in Central Florida and then five-star in Miami all sign on signer day at the same position. And the, they'd all get up and uh, <laughs> the next day in the paper and see uh, oh, Florida State signed uh, three five-stars at one position. That's, it's something that really, you know, can't happen anymore because most kids don't don't want to compete like that, but I'm sure there's lots of good, lots of good bits in there like that. Oh yeah, I wish there was a, a similar Syracuse book, maybe one day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I guess we'll talk about some uh, some drinks. Dan, what uh, what have you been drinking the last couple of weeks? Uh, not too much actually. I mean, that's not true. Uh, not a lot of crap beer, unfortunately. Uh, recently, I, I drank plenty. Again, went on a trip to Jersey, to Jersey Shore with my friends, and that included plenty of things. This craft beer wasn't really among them. It was more like half. Don't remember drinking these teas, these Corona lights. Um, but uh, I did try Blue Point Blueberry Ale, which um, is okay. Uh, that's like the one that I have on my tap here in the last like two weeks, so I'm really slacking, unfortunately, uh, even with the two week break until last podcast. Um, but as far as like blueberry ale though, uh, the only other one that Syracuse that I may have brought up before because uh, it was a, a Fagan staple is uh, Wachusett, and this one from Blue Point, it's fine, tastes fine, it's not like gross, but it's pretty watery, so I don't know if I'd recommend it. Um, Usually, you know, fruit beers are what they are, but usually I want it to, like, kind of taste like beer at least. And this one, not so much. Um, aside, aside from that, it's mostly been kind of standard stuff, eating wings. Um, I think I had a couple of those. But nothing too exciting this week. So I'll, I'll try to do better for next week. <laughs> Bud, what about you? What's your uh, what's your poison of choice? Uh, I'm, I'm more of a bourbon guy. 
uh, for the most part. I, I, I like, um, obviously, I've got a little bit of Pappy left, and I'm trying to just take that as slowly as I possibly can because it's, it's the old bottling. Uh, and so that's the last year of, of the 20 year. Um, and I also like uh, this, if you guys are bourbon fans or anybody listening, there's a bottle uh, by Old Forester, and, and I don't really like Old Forester regular, uh, but the Old Forester uh, birthday release is something that comes out every year, and it's it's very reasonably priced for one of these craft-style bourbons, um, you know, probably in the 40 to $50 range, not one of these you know, crazy $120 bottles or something like that. Um, but it, it's unique every year, and it's it's kind of cool, and it's always really well done. Um, in fact, I can't even find it down here in Florida right now, which is kind of annoying. Uh, but I do have some uh, left over from, from a two-year-old bottle or uh, from you know, two years ago. So I'm drinking a little bit of that. And then also because I live south of Tampa, uh, it means that we are getting really, really hot temperatures. Uh, so for the most part, any kind of beer I've been drinking lately has been of the light variety. I hate to admit it's just it's when, it, when it's you know, 95 degrees outside, I really don't want to drink something really dark. No judgment here. Um, I know if I was... Back on the East Coast, I'd probably be drinking much lighter things. Luckily, the constant 75 degrees and zero humidity of Santa Monica, California, allows me <laughs> to really kind of vary it up 24-7. <laughs> this has been our, our weekly John lives in Southern California, you guys, and it's really nice to segment of the podcast. God, I was out there for the Rose Bowl. It, it's so nice not ha- having that humidity, you know? Like, you don't really put the gold like the on you and get your newspaper. It's the most underrated part of being out here. It's, I mean, as someone who I was back east for 22 years, and I just remember New York summers and just disgusting humidity. I used to spend a ton of time down in North Carolina, and that disgusting humidity. And then uh, to have this is, is definitely a treat that I I try not to take uh, for granted. Yeah, a couple a uh, couple beers. My neck of the woods. Um, Ruin 10 from Stone, which anyone who's a Stone fan and everyone who listens knows I am, um, comes out once a year. It's delicious. I bought six bottles when it came out. Uh, It's one of Stone's best beers. 10.8% alcohol, 110 IBUs. Really just exactly what you're looking for out of like a really hoppy double IPA. Um, Had a brewery local red, which um, I don't know if Local Red really gets out of California. Ruin 10 does, um, but Local Red is a really good um, red ale for those who are fans. It's got a nice hoppiness, but not to the point where it's it's so much of a bomb. Like you might see, like I like Green Flash's green uh, redhead, hophead red, but at the same time, it's also pretty aggressive. Um, Bell's Brewery from Michigan is actually out here now, down in San Diego. Um, I was down there on Sunday had had their amber ale um, over at the ballpark, along with Modern Times, Loma Land. Um, just their really crisp, delicious Saison. Um, so highly recommend it, all of those. Plenty more. You can uh, follow me and Dan on Untapped to see the blow-by-blow of our beer consumption. But anyway, back to you, Dan. Well, we'll switch to the defensive side of the ball. What a... Uh, there are so many questions, I'm sure, but, but, but what is your uh, what was the main thing that you noticed about FSU's defense last year, and what you're you're kind of expecting out of them this year? Um, more good things. Uh, they were, I think, their defense is almost underrated last year because their offense was just so ridiculous. Um, but I think I saw someone they had like a top five defense as well, so you know why not? 
just pile it on. Um, this year, I'm interested to see what the linebacking core looks like. Uh, they lost Kelvin Smith. They lost Christian Jones. Um, so they show, they'll, they'll have to fill in those spots. I know they have some fairly experienced guys coming in um, to slide as the Will and the Sam. But, uh, yeah, losing two out of three linebackers is never ideal. Uh, so that'll be interesting. Um, and then, obviously, I think we touched on it before the before the uh, alcohol break, but um, they also lose a fair amount from their secondary. So there's more rebuilding going on here, if not rebuilding, I guess just plugging in new pieces here than there was on the offensive side. Um, so it could be interesting. Maybe this team might actually get into some shootouts. And they also lose Timmy Jurgen in front and uh, Jacoby McDaniel. So um, a little bit more of an adjustment here out of FSU from the list of things. Um, and if anything, for us college football fans, it just might mean that their offense, their first-team offense needs to play a little bit more, which is fun from our perspective. I, I'd be interested to see what James Winston can do with a season where he's not coming out after the third quarter every game. So um, I'm all for it for the slight downgrade of the Florida State defense, and, and maybe Syracuse can throw more than three points. You know, it, it's going to be interesting to see um, if anything with his defense changes. And, and so far – in, in terms of style, um, in the spring it really didn't, and Jimbo's made it pretty clear, at least to the media, uh, that he wants to run the exact same style of defense he was running before, and he called it the uh, the Florida State defense, which is, I guess, code word for the Alabama defense uh, because it's pretty much what he had to face all the way back at LSU in the early 2000s when he was uh, seeing Nick Saban every day in practice when he was LSU's offensive coordinator. I think really – that's why he wanted that defense and to bring in Jeremy Pruitt because he knew how, how frustrating it can be proposing offenses. Um, I'm sorry? Uh, sorry. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see everything changes stylistically. Uh, I, I think what you what you might see this year uh, is a little bit less blitzing um, because you do have, I think, better, more experienced defensive ends this year. Last year, you really didn't get a whole lot out of Chris Casher and Marcus Walker, uh, two former, you know, four slash five star guys. Uh, but I think they're maturing, coming along pretty well, uh, and that'll be the compliment Mario Edwards Jr. He really gives them a true kind of unique talent. Uh, if you look back on the season last year that Auburn had down the stretch, nobody really gave Greg Robinson any sort of trouble uh, until he faced Edwards Jr. in the uh, in the BCS title game. And this is a 290 pound defensive end who can do standing backflips. I mean, he's just kind of a freak. Um, and it also makes me wonder how in the world a kid got that big when his dad was a uh, kind of a smaller corner uh, for the Dallas Cowboys during his playing time. But anyway, uh, I think linebacker is actually going to be really a strength in this defense overall. Uh, they do have eight guys who are rated four or five stars coming out of high school and then two, uh, two pretty good-looking three stars as well. I'm not really worried about the secondary either, uh, to be honest, because if you remember, you know, they, they lost one guy last year in Tyler Hunter, uh, but now he's back and, and should be 100%. They returned Mel Kuyper's number one and number two corner prospects in the country. I don't think really anybody nationally can match that sort of ability on the outside. And when you have those two lockdown guys on the outside, especially against the more pro-style teams, it really gives you a crazy advantage in terms of what to do with the other nine guys on the ball field. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, I think you'll see some, expect, you know, uh, excuse me, continued maturation of Jalen Ramsey and Nate Andrews at safety. Um, the question for me on this defense, to be honest, is, is defensive tackle depth. And as we know, at least as I know, doing recruiting stuff, I'm, I'm sure you guys have probably seen some too at Syracuse over the years. 
defensive tackle busts like no other. I mean, you, you, the whole the whole formula here for defensive tackle is you just got to recruit a lot of good ones because you know there's a really high washout rate, there's a really high injury rate, and there's a really high rate of busts. And it looks like Florida State has some guys beyond their top two of uh, Eddie Goldman and Iowa Orange Stample who may just not be impact players. I mean, Derek Mitchell Jr. has not been able to stay healthy. Justin Shanks, uh, ditto. Georgia Newberry is now in his third position in, in four years. Uh, Keith Bryant uh, really perhaps was not as mature as he needed to be last year. Uh, and, and, you know, so they may have to rely on some true freshman backups. Now, granted, their true freshmen here were four or five stars coming in, which is really nice to have and, and a luxury that very few teams have. But if you're looking for a weakness on this defense, I, I think at least personnel-wise, uh, it's going to be defensive tackle depth. And then my real question, which I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, you don't know who's going to be the leaders on this defense. They really lost probably their three or four most influential leaders. And I don't know that there's a whole lot of guys on this defense now in terms of starters who are, who are all that vocal. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I know like we're dealing with something a little similar with Jay Bromley's departure on uh, the defensive tackle spot. I mean, but do you think that, that Mario Edwards could be that guy? Do you think that he he? I mean, obviously he he did well last year, but do you think he turns his five-star talent into you know potential All-American talk and and really into you know a, a complete leader on this defense um, in a what I think is a much more refined kind of Jadavian Clowney. Um, I mean, obviously not to draw that comparison. It can be a little lazy. But in general, like somebody who seems like a much better all-around player that Ben Clowney um, proved to be during his final year, which he may or may not have taken it easy on. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I, I'll tell you that guys on Florida State staff think Edwards Jr. was probably the most underrated player on this team last year uh, because you see defensive end and you assume sacks. Uh, but if you look at the defense they're running, which is basically uh, what Nick Saban runs, Saban's defenses have never had high sack totals when they've been good. And Florida State really didn't have high sack totals either. And, and I think that the, there was some you know, thought among Florida State fans of moving this guy inside the defensive tackle. Uh, but Florida State's coaches realized that this guy's true value is the ability to completely shut down the edge running game and collapse the pocket uh, from that defensive end position. At 290 pounds, most guys just cannot play, you know, a, a six or seven technique. They have to play kind of head up on the tackle in, in that true, you know, 34 alignment five technique. But Edwards Jr. is actually agile enough to be one of the rare guys who can play outside. So I, I think, at least in our comment, <clears throat> at least in our comment section, excuse me, there, we've seen people asking, do you think Edwards Jr. is going to be, you know, a 14, 16 sack guy and, and finally become a, a dominant player? And I, I, I said, look, uh, a no. B, I think he's already a dominant player, especially if you look at the Maryland game on last year. His ability to shut down the run game, the one side of the field, is incredibly value, valuable to the defense. And his pass rush ability really is not great, but he's definitely able to uh, to control one side of the pass rush to, to literally walk offensive tackles back in, make the quarterback uncomfortable off his front side, and uh, and we'll see, we'll see, or excuse me, not front side, off, off his back side. And, and I think he's already a really good player. If he can pass rush a little bit better, uh, they'll certainly take it. But I know that they were extremely happy uh, with, with the job he did last year over the past or over the last ten games or so. Having a defensive end that can stop the run, I think, is, is one of those underrated things because there's so many guys who can't do both. And 
And obviously, you know, Edwards had three and a half stats last year, which, you know, it's not a bad number for um, a team that kind of seemed to spread the wealth and getting in the backfield. But he also had nine and a half tackles for loss, so he definitely was a disruptive player. But to be able to, to both rush the uh, passer but then also contain the rush is, is invaluable because there's so many top defensive ends that you can run right at. And if he's not one of those, it, it really creates a, an issue for, for play callers. Oh, there, there's no doubt about it. I mean, especially when you consider, think about who, what players' tackles are typically tasked with blocking. You know, it, it's for the most part in, in, in run blocking, they're, they're asked to, to reach a defensive end who's 250 or so pounds. I mean, this is a guy who's 294 pounds, yet has the agility uh, to stay outside in a Florida State defense. And it's just something that you can't really, you, you can't simulate that in practice, uh, certainly not in the week, weekly out for the most part, unless you have some sort of freak in one of these rare teams across the country. So it, it's a real – it's a thing that makes Florida State's defense very unique, having Edward Jr. play that. I, I think he's probably the most important player on the defense for that reason. And I was actually wondering that, so I'm glad that we – Oh, shoot, I didn't mean to get that question. Inclusion. <laughs> no, no, that was actually – I was hoping we'd get there, that uh, – because you know what I mean, like you said, there, there's definitely some turnover, but at the same time, like if there's one guy that I, at least I saw just looking at the depth chart quick, that could really step up. And obviously has already stepped up, but a guy who could be that leader, I mean, certainly could be Edwards. Just looking yeah, at the line, I, I think it probably will be. No, I, I completely buy it. I mean, you just like like Dan said, the tackles for loss in particular. Um, it's like a huge, huge, you know, sign of what's to come. And like you said, Bud, if the linebacker core is is a strength that's only going to, you know, enhance Edwards' ability to really continue to hold in that run, even potentially free them up, um, you know, to get after the passer while he contains the rush. I mean, to me, usually it's the other way around that that's, that's actually kind of scary if, if a defensive lineman could potentially be, you know, setting up that linebacker group. For, for tackles for loss and sacks themselves. Sure, and if you think of it just physics-wise, I mean, normally if a tackle or, or tied in, you know, double combo, or able to get a yard or two of movement and, and get that seal on the edge, then the running back can take a much flatter angle uh, to the corner. But with, with Edward Jr. on his side, he pretty much holds the point of attack and is able to keep that outside arm free. But if you're the back to that side, you have to take such a looping angle around and for the most part, given Florida State is, is fairly quick at, at linebacker and, and, and the secondary, those guys just eat those runs up this side because the running back has had to take such a, an inefficient angle to, just to reach the outside. I think what's especially scary here is now that I'm just realizing and looking through this, this uh, list of players, there are very few seniors on the top of any of these positional depth charts. Like this defense, I'm sure there will be juniors that leave. This defense will be really good again in 2015, um, assuming it's really good next year, and that's pretty terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that judging by the numbers that they're recruiting, uh, they're expecting to lose uh, probably Edwards Jr., Goldman, and both corners uh, early to the draft. So, I mean, it, it's – yeah, I mean, it, those, are, those are guys who are probably – all first or second round talents, assuming they come out and they continue, they continue the progression that they've been on. But there's certainly a lot of talent. They, they've recruited well, and we, we saw this back when, when Urban Meyer had, had Florida rolling. You know, when you have one of the two 
or, or, or you know, two of the three big powers in Florida down for various reasons. And, and whenever Meyer got to Florida, it was because, you know, Bobby Bowden really didn't didn't have the FSU program humming like it did before. And, uh, you know, when Jimbo got to Florida, Florida State, excuse me, um, my fans are killing me for that one. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, you had Urban Meyer sort of do the I'm I'm quitting and I'm not quitting, and then you had Muschamp come on, and, and uh, right around that same time, the Miami sanctions were announced. Anytime one team has been able to control Florida recruiting and out-recruit the others in, the, in this state, it's produced a dominant team and oftentimes a national champion. It makes sense. Like I think they've won. I think they've won 11 of the last 32 titles. The state of Florida has. Yeah, and if you have one team that can just kind of prey on the top guys, obviously Florida still gets theirs even with the four and eight season. But if you have one team that's going to be able to dominate that landscape instead of two or three, like it just makes sense that they're going to be able to clean up in terms of recruiting. Like, there's just too many guys in Florida. Um, it's almost like the state was built to have three powers, and if, if there aren't, then it's, like, unfair if Florida State can just swoop in and, and take, you know, their pick of guys without Florida or Miami being competitive. Oh, I, I, absolutely. I mean, just, you know, thinking back to the, you know, Gator thing, FSU felt fairly good about landing uh, the, the Pouncey Twins and uh, Percy Harvin and those guys, and then just down the stretch, uh, you know, they, they just didn't get them. And then obviously they, they paid their dealer for that over the next three or four years uh, having to face those guys. It, it's it's been something we've seen for a long time. Uh, you know, Florida and Florida State were really, really good when Miami went on probation in the mid-'90s. Um, you know, Florida – or excuse me, Florida State and Miami uh, in, in kind of the later 90s when Steve Spurrier was not quite as interested in recruiting. Uh, they got really, really good as well. You know, Florida State won a title in 99 and played for it. In 98, 2000, and then Miami comes and, and wins in 2001. Um, and I think in large part because Florida was a bit down in recruiting during that time as well. So it's it's something interesting to track and, and something we're, we're very very interested in Florida State to see what these other two teams are going to do in terms of recruiting. Now, Bud, it's an interesting phenomenon. Do you think you think this is something unique to Florida? Do you think this will also apply to places like Texas and California and maybe like the Ohio, Pennsylvania area? You know, I, I probably think it does, um, at, at least to, to some extent in other places. I, I don't know that those other areas have historically had the same balance. You know, like, like Florida, Florida State, and Miami have all been pretty even over the last 30 years. And Miami has the most titles. Florida plays in a little bit tougher league. Florida State had, had the 14 years of, of top five top five finishes in a row. Um, you know, if you look at Texas, Texas A&M, for the most part, Texas has just whipped them over the last two decades or so, but we're gradually seeing A&M start to beat them in recruiting now uh, pretty consistently out west where you are. USC, I kind of think when they're at full strength, is still the dominant recruiting power. It's not like they they don't have to rely on anybody else being down in order to get the best players, what I'm saying. Um, I, th- I think Florida is unique because historically the, the three programs have really had a whole lot of balance, typically. That definitely makes sense. I think, you know, you even saw that slight blip um, when USF thought that they were about to come up and become this kind of fourth power. And it's interesting. I know Dan and I have talked about it in the past. It's interesting that over and over again, you know, whether it's USF or UCF or FIU, like you see all these, you know, other Florida schools kind of come in and try to stake a claim to being, you know, the fourth power in Florida. And yet over and over again, 
Um, it just seems like nobody can just get over that hump. They might get they might get through a nice eight or nine win season, and then it just seems like they drop off again. Well, you know, there was a time there uh, that I don't know if you're your, our Giants fans, but uh, Jason Pierre-Paul was a kid that all the schools in Florida wanted, but the big three couldn't find a way to get him into school. At, at least that's what I was told. And USF somehow found a way. But it seems recently that USF has not taken the same approach to taking some of these higher academic risk type guys or, or, or some of the behavioral risk type guys uh, that, that they previously did. Like when Jim Levitt was there, they were getting in some players who were certainly good enough to play at Florida and Florida State Miami, but for whatever reason, be it you know character or academics, the big schools were just not able to give them a yes. And so they were going and playing down in Tampa for USF. It seems recently that's changed a whole lot. I guess on that note, do you think that – I mean, I, I think that a lot of people feel this way. Do you think that firing Jim Levitt was the worst thing USF did for itself as a program, especially with the rise of UCF kind of coinciding with it? You know, I think I, it's I a really good question. Um, there, there's, there's two sides of that coin. I mean, did he hit the player or did he not? That was kind of a, kind of a question. And if he did hit a kid – the, the negative recruiting implications of that could be pretty severe. Uh, and, and so we don't actually know what his future would have been um, had he been retained and that story been out there. You know, w- we can always compare what USF is now to what it was on, under Levitt. But, A, it seems that USF's administration uh, is, is taking a different different tack now to uh, in, in terms of allowing some of these partial qualifiers and, and those those sorts of kids in. Um so would Levitt have fared nearly as well without kids like that? Probably not. Uh, and then, B, we really don't know how well he would, would have recruited if he had to answer questions about, about striking a kid. Fair point. So I guess to wrap up, um, usually we go down the list to win losses, but with Florida State, it kind of seems like a waste. <laughs> so I guess, so I guess I'm going to ask you, is Florida State going to lose a game? You know, I, I – the smart money probably says yes if you look at, at, at all those names on their uh, on their schedule. But I've, I've traditionally been fairly conservative in predictions. I think last year I had them at ten and two or eleven and one, kind of right on the border there. Um, I I don't think they will uh, to be, which is is kind of crazy. I, I just Oklahoma State is a really nice name for the schedule, and I think that at the end of the year. It would be a team that, that is probably vastly improved. Uh, but they lost more Letterman than any, any team in the entire country. And that's really not a great proposition if you have to face Florida State in game one. Uh, so I, it, it seems to me like Florida State has a tougher tougher game to name uh, there than it will actually on the field. Um, you get Clemson at home, which and, and you get them early, you know, in, in the third ball game of the year. That's a Clemson offense that lost a whole heck of a lot. They're going to have a really good defense, but – are they really going to be ready to roll at that point in the year? I don't know. I mean, I think that's another part of the schedule that timing-wise sets up well for State. I think Clemson's probably going to be a much better team later in the year when everybody's kind of more assimilated into that offense uh, than they will be early. I mean, at NC State, there's been a bugaboo for Jimbo. He's already lost twice there in his career as a head coach, and, and we'll see what happens uh, this time. But NC State looks like perhaps the youngest team in the conference this year. So that probably won't won't happen. Um you know, the, the, you go you go to Syracuse, but you are getting them at least after playing Wake at home. So you have to rest up some guys 
for the, uh, the Syracuse Notre Dame Louisville stretch, you can rest them up against Wake. You know, against Wake, it's not like there's a, a a hangover game before you go play at Syracuse. We know Syracuse is a is a physical football team. They may not be a great team, but they will hit you and they, they will, you know, they'll they'll punish you physically if, if you're not ready for them. You know, Notre Dame at home, I I kind of think that might be FSU's toughest game. Uh, to be honest, I think Notre Dame's got more talent than some people realize. But then again, it's it's in Tallahassee. Uh, at Louisville, I kind of think Louisville's a little bit overrated, to be honest. Um, you know, they are moving from the Big East to the ACC. You guys can kind of speak to uh, to the difference in, in, in the quality of the conference they're having to face in FSU and Clemson and, and, and schools like that. Uh, and they, they lose, you know, Teddy Bridgewater and all those dudes. And then, you know, you, you got the game at Miami. That ever since Miami's lost the Orange Bowl, Florida State has been undefeated down there. And, and the change in location – of the stadiums has really encouraged FSU alumni, which is a huge alumni base down there, to buy tickets. And the last couple of times they've gone down there, it's been more of a neutral site feel uh, than it has a Miami home game feel because of, of all the, the you know, Miami's a small, small school and Florida State's a huge public school. They go and buy out a lot of those tickets. And so that really doesn't seem all that tough, particularly with Miami not really having a, a defined quarterback at this point and a defense that's been pretty bad for a couple of years. And then Florida, I think, could be a very tough game if they get it all together. Uh, but then again, there's a chance they could have fired Will Muschamp at that point in the year. I mean, he may already have four losses entering, entering you know, the game in Tallahassee. So I, I think the schedule is going to be very favorable media-wise because I think a lot of the media is going to see all these names on there. You know, Oklahoma State, Louisville, Notre Dame, Clemson, Florida, Miami. But I think if you look at it in terms of the timing in which they play these teams and what some of these teams lost, especially the ones they play early, I think it probably does set up for them to go undefeated, assuming, of course, that they, you know, stay relatively healthy, which is a huge caveat and, and something you have to include in almost any kind of prediction in college football because you don't have all that much experience depth in any team, really. I think that's the most well-reasoned and modest way I've ever heard someone predict their team will go undefeated. <laughs> <laughs> And I should say that, like, you really shouldn't have this much talent on one college football team. Um, I know Bill Connolly said it, so I'm glad I didn't have to say it, but he, he wrote, uh, uh, Florida State is a reigning national champion. The Seminoles had the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, and they will ha- probably have more players picked in the 2015 draft than any team in the last 20 years. So uh, if you're going to pick a team to go undefeated, picking the one that's probably going to have more kids drafted than any team in the last 20 years is, is not a bad one to hang your hat on. You see any losses on the schedule? No. <laughs> I was just glad we go team by team because I thought that would be the most boring podcast of all time. Um, no, I think there's some interesting games. Uh, I mean, at Louisville, I believe it's that's a Thursday night. Um, so that could be interesting. You know, the Thursday night game is just kind of weird. Uh, Syracuse fans can happily attest to. Um, but I'm not, as, as Bud said, like, I'm not ready to anoint Louisville as, like, the next big ACC Atlantic, like, hopeful. Just I'm not ready to call Will Gardner, like, an all-ACC quarterback like some people have. Um, but it might be really good. Uh, you never know with them. But, no, they should take a step back um, between losing all those guys and the Justin Petrino system. And then after that, I mean, they they get pretty lucky. They they get us and NC State on the road and Oklahoma State in a neutral site, which should be an interesting game, um, especially – if they, you know, because they are breaking on some new guys on defense, but and it's a, a really high octane offense. Um, and then Florida, I mean, who knows? I, Florida should be better because I can't imagine them being worse. Um, but 
they're just, it seems like the schedule really um, plays out nicely for a repeat. And obviously, it's probably a wiser bet to say they'll slip up somewhere along the way. But if Ohio State can go undefeated two regular seasons in a row, I don't see why this Florida State team can't um, against a, you know, a solid but not, you know, over like an SEC West schedule. So uh, I wouldn't bet against them going undefeated. Yeah, and I'm definitely going to echo that. And I think, you know, they both hit it on the head. The schedule lays out well. The names are there. Um, you know, when you look at a just terrible Virginia team, a rebuilding D.C. team, a Florida team that may or may not have its bearings, and a Miami team that, you know, lost one of its best players um, to injury in, in Ryan Williams um, to end the, the season. I mean, to me, that, that sets up for a perfect, um, you know, playoff run. And it's going to be interesting, I think, you know, as members of the ATC, too, we'll get to, you know, watch this firsthand with seeing Florida State and seeing how their schedule lays out at the end is how is how is the playoff committee going to look at that? Um, are they going to focus on the names? Are they going to focus on, um, you know, that, that late-season strength of schedule? Are we going to see a bump for, for some SEC West teams that might have a backloaded schedule? So I think it'll, it'll be a fun case study in the first year of the playoff committee to kind of see um, – you know, FSU get through what should be an interesting October um, and then what could be a, a very breezy November um, and then an ACC championship game against a team that will probably be like 7-5. and five. Uh, <laughs> I guess we'll see. We'll kind of see how the, how the uh, playoff committee rewards them at the end. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you teased that uh, because I'm actually working on an art. I'm also estimation gambling column. That's just because we didn't have somebody at the time and I ended up liking doing it. Um, but there's a real stark difference if you look at this, and I won't give the whole thing away, but between who Vegas thinks can make the playoff and between who Vegas thinks can actually win the playoff. And looking at their odds, the, the early conclusion that I have is that they really don't believe that the committee will take strength and schedule into account all that much. Like everybody's thinking strength and schedule, strength and schedule, strength and schedule. You know, it's some team can get left out. But most likely it seems that, that at least according to the Vegas guys, that it's going to be very diplomatic and that if you play in a major conference and you go undefeated or you have one loss, you're going to have a really good shot uh, to go regardless of if your schedule is that tough or not. I mean, I've been saying this since the playoff committee first came out. I and I know like that everyone's been harping on straight the schedule too. It's like, At the end of the day, you're not going to – if the SEC East champ manages to beat a very down division and play absolutely no one in non-conference, you're not going to tell, you know, a 13 and 0 Georgia team that they're that they're not in the playoff. Like the goal of college football has always been don't lose any games. And I don't think that a playoff committee changes that in any way shape or form. <laughs> like the undefeated teams in the Power 5 conferences are going to be in the playoff and there's rarely more than a few of them. So to me like I, I think I, I like that strength of schedule being brought up and I think um, it, it's nice to see those marquee matchups to the fans, but I think from a playoff perspective, I don't really think it does anything. And I think that we're, we're going to see, for everyone harping that things have changed, I think we're going to see at the end of the season that not much has at all. And I, I think that's especially true if you look at um, if, if the program is a name program. I mean, could Baylor get left out? Sure. Is Oklahoma going to get left out from the Big 12? I, I don't think so. I, mean, I, I really think that a lot of these guys on the committee – they're older dudes. They think of these programs in a certain more historical lens. Um, 
I don't think they're going to leave a team like Oklahoma out, but I think they might leave a team like a Baylor out or perhaps like a UCLA or, or something like that if, if it comes down to that. Yeah, and luckily, I mean, how many times have we seen five power conference teams go undefeated? Like, I think the chances of that are even still pretty low. Um, unless the team has like a Duke-type out-of-conference schedule and then avoids all of the tough teams in their cross divisions or whatever, I just can't see it really coming to play. And if it does, then people, you know, will light some torches and will move towards the 16 playoff or 18 playoff sooner than later, which would be great. So hopefully people uh, get what they want. But uh, I'm all for more complaining until we get, like, a really awesome system. Although the four team is so infinitely better than what the BCS was, I'm very happy with it for now. I guess that's a good spot to end. Um, yeah, so you heard it here. Florida State's going to go undefeated and win the national championship again. <laughs> Mark it down. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm sure Syracuse fans will once again be celebrating in the comments section, just as we did last year. It only helps. Uh, it only helps from a conference pride standpoint, and not that we needed convincing that we made the right decision. But it's nice to laugh at the team, cough, cough, UConn, that did not get to make the same decision we did. <laughs> you know, I, I know. At the high school, so. <laughs> the, uh, the the feedback we have from our community, by the way, about you all site, it's just, it, it, it was awesome. It really, it like we enjoyed the, the back and forth, and it wasn't this sort of, uh, how do I say this, like, like when we were interacting with the Maryland fans, and I love Pete Volk, and he obviously does a great job, but it seemed like a lot of the Maryland fans really went into that game believing they would win. And then when they didn't, it just got kind of like really nasty in the comment section. And I was just thinking to myself, like, do, do y'all see who y'all recruit versus who FSU recruits? Like, that's really all thought you're going to win. Okay. Um, but, you know, it just seemed like there was more, like, I don't know, maybe it's because it was late in the season, unfortunately it was already established, but we we liked y'all's comment section a lot. We, we had fun with y'all, and it was it's we definitely agree that y'all, you know, a great addition to the ACC and, and the estimation ACC side as well. Thanks, bud. Looking forward to another fun fall. I mean, other than you guys ruining our homecoming this year, which will happen. Um, Why did we do that? Be... <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, Syracuse has this weird policy where it decides Let's take the toughest opponent on the schedule and let's make that the homecoming game. <laughs> Every year, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Every single season. The game that everyone was going to come to anyway because all the alums are going to come back. You make that. Wait. Is this homecoming? It is homecoming. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, homecoming is that's home. stupid. <laughs> huh. Well, I mean, I guess at least it's playing Florida State for your homecoming is a game that cements that, hey, you are definitely in the ACC, and you can celebrate uh-huh. being in the ACC and not being left behind in the Big East. That's true. That, that's a celebration-worthy fact. <laughs> <laughs> Every single day. Day. Yeah, uh... I think we could wrap it there. Uh, thanks for joining us, bud. Much appreciated. Had a blast. Enjoy it, guys.
And, uh, everyone, thanks for tuning in to Trend Engine Absolute Podcast. And, uh, again, be sure to check out the uh, Audible.com free trial at audibletrial.com slash There are no Syracuse teams playing right now, but I'm pretty sure Virginia is about to complete their process of losing the, World, the College World Series and continuing the ACC streak of not winning that contest. So, uh, yeah, go ACC in the sarcastic way. Up to 70% off. That's right, at Court Furniture Clearance Center. Get up to 70% off new retail prices and choose from a wide variety of previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. Sofas from $199.99. Bedroom sets from $399.99. Dining sets from $299.99 and more. All items are court certified, guaranteed, and in stock, ready for delivery or to take home today. Make the smart choice and visit one of our five locations in the DMV or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.